I'm going to uh, be looking at Ezekiel chapter 3 tonight, verses 15 through 21, as Gino said. Study that we're calling Someone to Watchman Over Me. If there were a job description for a parent, it might sound like this. Long-term team players needed for challenging permanent work in an often chaotic environment. Candidates must possess excellent communication and organizational skills, be willing to work variable hours, which include evenings and weekends and frequent 24-hour shifts on call. Some overnight travel required, including trips to primitive camping sites on rainy weekends and endless sports tournaments in faraway cities. Travel expenses not reimbursed. Extensive courier duties also required. Possibility for advancement and promotion? None. Your job is to remain in the same position for years without complaining, constantly retraining and updating your skills so that those in your charge can ultimately surpass you. (laughs) Wages and compensation? You pay them. You must offer frequent raises and bonuses. A balloon payment is due when they turn 18 because of the assumption that college will help them become financially independent. When you die, you give them whatever is left. It's a pretty accurate job description, except it doesn't really catch the joy you derive from making all those sacrifices and many more. Oh. Let's do that. Oh, that must, maybe some of you parents, no, never mind. In our passage, Ezekiel is going to receive a job title, watchman. He then gets a brief job description and is told some of his responsibilities. In the New Testament, we too are told to watch. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, for example, we're told, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ told us to watch in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Our watching as New Testament believers seems to have a twofold application. Number one, we are to watch in the sense of being wary of the many perils and pitfalls that are out in the world. But two, we are to be watching for Jesus, to be looking for and hastening the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Since we are called to watch... Perhaps we can learn a thing or two from Ezekiel as Israel's 6th century watchman. And so we'll begin in verse 15. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Kabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. It says here, Ezekiel came to Tel Aviv. Uh, We know that he did that by being divinely, supernaturally transported by God from one location to another, and that is what we talked about last time. His audience was the captives at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Kabar. I remind you that historically the narrative takes place after the second siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire, but before the final decisive siege in which the temple would be ruined. The Jews in captivity still held on to groundless hope that their subjection to Babylon would be brief. They could not accept that God would allow His earthly dwelling place to be overrun by His enemies. Too often, Christians are not ready for trials or sufferings because they have 
what I can only describe as an unrealistic hope. They just can't accept that God would let bad things happen to his people. When trials or sufferings come, they are, for lack of a better word, discombobulated, which is a real word, by the way. I had to look it up, but, and I couldn't spell it. But if you notice when you just put something in Google, it says, did you mean this? Sure, yeah, that works for me. But uh, anyway, they were confused and frustrated. And, and uh, people in the world, non-believers, oftentimes one of their complaints against God is that he lets bad things happen, uh, especially to good people. I remember when I first got saved, one of the first things I wanted to do was go and talk to my former philosophy teacher, uh, Jim Biffle, great guy. He had taught me a lot. We had been in kind of, uh, me and a, another couple had been like disciples of his almost, for lack of a better We had cl- not a class, but we used to just meet together. You're going to laugh, but we used to meet together and study poetry. And, uh, but I mean, really egghead poetry, you know, William Butler Yeats and what does this mean and all that stuff. And I had a real love and, a, uh, you know, affection for Jim and I went and I shared Christ with him and we ended up talking the entire time about the problem of pain, about human suffering. And that was his thing is that I, he couldn't get beyond the fact that a God of love would allow suffering. I had theological answers for him, of course, but that was his, that was it. He just couldn't accept that there would be suffering in the world. And a lot of times Christians are in that same boat. I, some of you may know people who they just have turned their back on God or they're not really walking with the Lord anymore because of some very tragic, very real tragedy in their life. Uh, or someone close to them died, someone in their family died, a, a child died, there was an accident, an illness, something like that. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, after the fact, in, a, in an analysis of it like we're doing tonight, I'd have to say they just have an unrealistic hope that God is not ever going to allow bad things to happen to to his people or to even good people. And the truth is we live in a fallen world and and we need to have a theology of affliction, a theology of suffering. We need to understand that these things not only will occur, they do occur. It's better to adopt the worldview of Job, who we hold up as an example of the greatest sufferer of all time. If there was an awards ceremony for suffering, he would get the golden potsherd. Uh, you know, because he just sat there on the on the ash heap with a potch. I was thinking about Job the other day and wondering if they've ever really portrayed that well in a movie. I mean, it says he had boils from that crown of his head to the soles of his feet, sitting on an ash heap in a ju- not a junkyard, but a, in a, a garbage heap. And uh, he'd grab these potsherds and he would scrape himself. Have you ever had a boil? Stuff is in there. Scrape it and stuff comes out. I'm saying stuff, but you know what? It's the P word, pus. And and uh, <coughs> I mean, can you? I how long could you watch a movie about Job? I mean, seriously, it'd be it'd be gross. Uh, but uh, hey, who's that? That's Job. You know. So anyway, um, here's his worldview: the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Job understood that. He had to work through it. Uh, you know, to really come to grips with it, they understood it. It was Ezekiel's task to tell the captives that God's glory would depart from Jerusalem for a time and that their captivity would be an extended one. He says, I sat where they sat. The other evening, actually it was Sunday night at our Caltech class, one of the brothers read a comment about that very phrase uh, that Pastor Chuck Smith penned in the Word for Today's Study Bible. 
So now I can't quote from it and act like I'm really profound. I, I just it's impossible to do that now. But it was to point out that we might want to get to know people before we judge them or are critical of them or at least give some thought to their situation by thinking through the ramifications of what has gone on in their lives. It's not hard to really look at somebody, ask them a few questions or know something about them and think, I wonder what that would really be like. What would it be like to be in that situation with that handicap, with that illness, with that problem, with that set of circumstances? You know, what, what would that be? What, what would a day in the life of that individual be like? Uh, how does that contribute to the person that they are and those kinds of things? And so we want to we sit where, where people have sat. Now, apparently, Ezekiel sat there without talking for a period of seven days. I can't say the precise meaning of the seven days, except that the concept of seven days is always significant to the Jews. It would at least imply to them that God was at work, that this was a divine work of God through his anointed prophet. It certainly would build suspense, wouldn't it? Add to that that Ezekiel had appeared out of nowhere, having been transported, and you've got quite a drama brewing. So you're out there hanging out by the river Kabar. I don't know if it was, you know favorite swim spot or, you know, what the Jews did. Maybe it was vacation time at K-Bar, you know, spring break. Uh, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, was, was Ezekiel here a few minutes ago? Did, did, did you guys see Ezekiel? And all, because, you know, he was transported supernaturally. All of a sudden he was there and he's got this weird countenance. And prophets, they just kind of look weird anyway. You know, they're just, they're just there's a weirdness about them. It's, it's a holy weirdness, but it's still weird. And then it's like, wow, the prophet's here. What's he have to say? Nothing for seven days. Every day you come out to the beach, spread out your blanket, get your picnic going. There's Ezekiel sitting there. Nothing going on in his lips, you know, just over and over again. So this is, this is building and building to something fascinating. It says Ezekiel was astonished. Well, I'd be too if I had been transported from one place to another. Maybe he had transportation sickness. I don't know. You know, in Star Trek, some of you are Star Trek fans, right? You know, every now and then the, the, the transporter gets glitched and they're in another dimension or something, you know, or, or they come back, put back together wrong. But anyway, uh, he was astonished. But there are other possible meanings for the word astonished. In its verb form, it's used to describe reaction to people or places that have been destroyed. It could be Ezekiel was looking ahead to the destruction of both people and places and it weighed heavy upon him. This is like... Somebody was talking this morning, I think it was Pat, about the floods, you know, in the south and, you know, schools that are like underwater and, and stuff. And, and it's astonishing when you see the, the, that kind of death and destruction and, and, and all that. Another meaning of this word is to be appalled at something or someone. Could be Ezekiel was appalled that the Jews were remaining so hard-hearted against God. Uh, he didn't necessarily want to have to bring this message. I mean, wouldn't, you know, I'm sure he would rather they just repent so that he didn't have to bring this message. I think that believers today could benefit from a little more astonishment. We see what God is doing and about to do as we study Bible prophecy. We see the destruction, the coming destruction of both people and places. Yet so many people go on as if judgment was not coming at all. It's astonishing, really, when you think about it, as we read the Bible, as we see the, the prophecies lining up in the world, uh, and then people going about their business. 
even in the sense that they are, you know, they're continuing to publish and, and produce these things on television about the end times. Everybody's, all the movies are about 2012. All the specials are about 2012. Is the world going to end in 2012? I don't think anybody really cares if the world is... You know, they're just trying to get generate some interest. No one's really acting like they believe the world. These guys at the end of the History Channel's thing on 2012, they don't say, we didn't have time to do the credits because we're digging bunkers. You know, to try and avoid this. I mean, it's it just, you know, people just go on their way as if uh, nothing's ever going to happen. And we should be astonished. When I do a prophecy update, it's astonishing to me that what the Bible wrote, spoke of 2,000, 3,000 years ago is happening before our very eyes. Even in my lifetime, when I first became a Christian, so much of what we believed was going to happen, you know, and now it is happening. Gene uh, sent me a, uh, a YouTube thing of an ad that AT&T did in 1993 about microchipping people and how you'd be able to walk through doors and make phone calls and do everything, you know, with your personal kind of, uh, you know, identifier and stuff. And, and back then it was really like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, that's science. That was just, you know, 2015 years ago, 16 Man, thank you so much for all your help. I appreciate that. I, I didn't get through geometry. Of course, addition and subtraction is not geometry, is it really? <coughs> but anyway, I did try... Tri I did, that's not true. I lied. I did get through geometry, but I flunked out of trigonometry. I just... I couldn't get it. I just... What's with triangles? Who was isosceles? I, I wanted isosceles and Pythagoras to fight. And that's, that's all I knew. But anyway, Pam's real good with triangles and, you know, the sides and all that. Kind of, I just can't get it. Okay, anyway, the reason they don't see it, people in the world don't see it, is because they're spiritually dead and thus they're blinded to the truth. But the gospel has power to remove their blindness. It's the power of God to salvation. And so we preach the gospel, we share with them, uh, and God will open their eyes. And so verse 16, it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying. The word of the Lord will come to Ezekiel something like 50 different times in this book. It's a favorite saying of his. I was thinking about how it can come to us any time we read the Bible with ears to hear. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? You just come to the word of God and think, Lord, I have ears to hear. And he says, well, then my word is going to come to you. I have something to say to you. We are really so much better off than these Old Testament saints. Sometimes you think, man, I wish I could have been one of these guys. These guys are so saintly. By the time we're done with Ezekiel, you're not going to want to be him. Uh, I'm telling you. you just, he's, the things he does starting in chapter 4 that he has to act out and all, it, it just, it's, it's amazing. But um, we're really better off than these guys in terms of our knowledge of God and Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. The Word of the Lord coming to us. Verse 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. In Bible times, cities were walled and there were towers along the wall. The watchman looked out for approaching danger and he looked in for disturbances. It was his job to warn the people of trouble, whether it was from without or from within. Hear a word from my mouth. That's a great way to think about reading your Bible as well. Stop to hear a word directly from God's mouth to your ears. 
Now, as a watchman, Ezekiel would launch right into his time of warning after this seven-day waiting period. Have you discovered yet that God has his own timetable when it comes to preparing you to serve him? Mostly we get ahead of God, thinking like Moses did initially, that we are ready. When others don't recognize what we believe God is doing, then we can grow impatient. We move on. We found some other place where they will recognize us. It's not always in God's will. And when it's not, it can be accompanied by, uh, excuse me, it can't be accompanied by the anointing and the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense of wanting to get out ahead of God, uh, you know, and, and uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament says leaders should not be novices lest they be puffed up with pride. And so some people have this sense that, hey, I'm ready to go. Moses thought he was ready to go. But he wasn't. God said, no, you're not quite ready. We're almost there. I just need 40 more years. Uh, and, 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 okay, right, that's great. So what seminary? University of Egypt? Uh, you know, is it a Calvinist school, an Arminian school? Where am I going to go, you know? And he goes, no, you're going to the desert. I'm going to introduce you to a guy named Jethro. You're going to tend his sheep for 40 years, and then you're going to be ready to deliver my people. And, and Moses was, you know, it, it was an amazing story, but interesting. And, and we're like that. We want to get ahead sometimes. Other times, God's timing seems too fast. We're thrust into a situation when we don't feel at all prepared to handle it. Again, the key is to be in the will of God, because if you are, His Spirit will handle it through you, using you to stretch you. So, there's a curious balance all the time in God making us men and women of God, where He's holding us back in some areas and pushing us forward in others holding us back when we think we're ready to go, pushing us forward when we think we're not, all so that we will learn to depend upon Him and do the work of the Holy, uh, through the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that people can do, and it can seem spiritual, but if it's not accompanied really by the Spirit, uh, then it doesn't have any real lasting benefit. It doesn't do anything for you. Now, Ezekiel's words of warning are going to involve two classes or kinds of Jews. I'll take a message. Uh, and it's important we understand who they are. There were those classified as the wicked. Now remember his audience was entirely comprised of Jews, so these are wicked Jews. And there were also righteous Jews. Ezekiel and Daniel and his three friends, for example, were in this class. So here then is Ezekiel's warning to the wicked Jews of his time. He says in verses 18 and 19, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die... And you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Now in passing, notice in verse 18, God says, when I say to the wicked, it would be Ezekiel's voice, but God's words. And that's a great way of approaching the preaching and teaching of the Word. God is wanting to speak through His Word using our ability to speak words to others. We must therefore be so careful to stick closely to the Word of God, either sharing the Word itself or being careful to share things that are true about the Word of God. Let's talk about the wicked before we discuss what God lays on Ezekiel. This was a Jew who was not even going through the outward motions of keeping God's law. Nevertheless, God held out the possibility that even at this late moment, 
the wicked man, he says, could turn from his wicked ways and be saved. The wicked man needed to hear the word warning him of God's judgment to come. While we always preach and teach the message of grace, it has to include a very real understanding of judgment to come. The unsaved individual must know he or she is a sinner, that they have fallen short of God's standard, and that they cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. And that, to me, is just part of the message of grace, is to let people know that they're sinners. Uh, you know, uh, Ray Comfort, who's a, uh, an evangelist, has a website, livingwater.com. We get a lot of our tracks from him. He likes to use the law of God in an interesting way in his evangelism, the Ten Commandments especially. He, he, at, in every one of his tracks, he gets to the point where he says, well, let's... You know, are you a good person or this or that? And he eventually says, well, let's ask a few questions. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever had an evil thought? He goes through some of the commandments to show that you and I are lawbreakers. We've broken God's law. And that's why we need a Savior. You need to have some understanding, (coughs) excuse me, that you're a sinner in order to need a Savior. The famous illustration that he uses and others have used before him is a parachute on an airplane. Uh, You're not going to wear a parachute on an airplane just as a precautionary measure. Uh, You know, if some of you travel, you know, maybe you're going on vacation. uh, If they passed out parachute, you ever had a parachute on? You know how big it is? I mean, you know, it's not it's not like the flotation device that you're sitting on. I mean, it's a big. And so imagine if you had to wear a parachute and you'd eventually say, hey, is there real danger that this plane is going to go down other than I just think it might? No, we're we're pretty safe. I'm not going to wear this then. As opposed to. The stewardess coming, screaming down the galleyway saying, we're going to die. And then all of a sudden you'd be struggling to put your parachute on. And you think, okay, this is a life-saving thing to me because I could die any minute. I'm going to hit the ground and splat. And so the, the parallel is there. I mean, people need to know that, that there is a hell to avoid. Uh, and so there's a balance to the message. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to choose hell. And so we see that uh, people need to be shown that they're sinners. Now, one point I like to make, it's not that we have to point out their specific sin or concentrate on a specific sin so much as we show them all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is the drunkard a sinner because he abuses alcohol or does he abuse alcohol because he is a sinner? It's the sin nature that we want folks to understand, not just individual acts of sin. Otherwise, they get the mistaken idea that they can stop or clean up their lives and by their works be right with God. Or in some cases, they think, well, this isn't sin. This is the way I was born. And so, you know, there's nothing. And so when we only concentrate on the specific sin uh, that a person has, hammering them left and right, punching them all the time about this one particular sin, whatever it might be, we're taking the focus off the fact that, they're, that all of us are born sinners. None of us can achieve God's standard. Uh, and, and, and that is why we need our Savior. And we don't want to give people the impression that they can clean up their own lives in their own time by their own works and then be right with God. And you've talked to a lot of people like this over the years. And, you know, they say, well, one of these days I'll, you know, 
I'll quit doing this, I'll get my life together and start going to church. No, you start going to church and get your life together after you get there, after you meet Christ. That's, isn't that what happened to those of you who got saved later in life? You tried to, to save yourself, maybe through some religion, or you tried to lose yourself in drugs or some relationship, and then Jesus found you and he saved you, and then he changed you. He, he began to work from the inside out because you realize that you were a sinner in need of a savior. And so we want to share with the wicked, with the sinner, that, that he needs a savior. Now let's take a look at the righteous man before we discuss what God lays on Ezekiel. Verses 20 and 21, he says again, When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall be... Uh, excuse me, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, also you will have delivered your soul. Now the righteous Jew was the one whose genuine faith in the living God was manifested by a delight in his word and by obedience to his law. Old Testament, New Testament, People are saved exactly the same way on their faith in Jesus Christ. When discussing salvation, the Apostle Paul used Abraham as an example. And the example was that everyone has always been saved the same way. Abraham was justified. He was declared right. He was saved by faith before the giving of the law. Then you see his faith worked out in the obedience of his life. You see that he was a righteous man because he delighted in the Lord and walked with the Lord. God said to Ezekiel that he would lay a stumbling block before the righteous man. That sounds a little unlike God. Well, here's what he means. The stumbling block is not an enticement to sin. It is not God tempting the righteous man or woman. It is what we would call a trial or a testing. What are trials intended to do? They're intended to reveal genuine faith, to reveal genuine faith and to refine our faith. To again appeal to Job, who knows more about trials than most of us, he said that after God had tried him, he would come forth as what? As gold. And so he understood that God, his suffering was this kind of stumbling block. Uh, it was an opportunity for his faith to be revealed and refined. And that's the whole point, really, of Job 1 and 2. The devil says, Job has no faith in you. He only trusts in you and believes in you and talks to you because you've blessed him. And God basically said, no, he has a genuine faith in me that can survive suffering. And the devil said, well, let's put that to the test. And God said, you're on. He said, you can do this and no more. And Job, I mean, he did a lot to Job. But Job understood at the end that God had revealed his genuine faith and that he had refined it. Uh, God would lay a trial upon the righteous in Ezekiel's day and through it, their genuine faith would be revealed and refined. A stumbling block was coming their way. It was actually already there, but it would get worse. And that stumbling block, that trial was Babylon. Uh, read Habakkuk which takes place a little bit before this, and you'll see this kind of stumbling block. Habakkuk says, do something. Make your people, you know, uh, repent. God says, I'm going to do something, but you don't, you're not going to like it, and you wouldn't believe it. Habakkuk says, try me. 
And he goes, okay, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And he goes, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And he stumbled over it in a sense. But by the end of the book, he had come to a point of faith. He says, man, everything's going to fail. No crops, no calves, no dairy products, nothing. But I will praise the Lord. I will walk with the Lord. And, and, and he says, I'll make my, he'll make my hinds feet on high places. And he talked about how God was going to elevate his faith. And so that's what we're talking about here. Always stay in the context. It's not just talking about a general stumbling block. God has, has brought them into captivity and he's going to destroy their temple. And they're going to be in this captivity for 70 years. That's quite a stumbling block. That's quite a test of faith. It's going to reveal who is righteous and who is not. And that's what's being talked about here. Babylonian invasions and captivity would definitely show who was righteous and who was only going through outward motions. The truly righteous man was thus encouraged to endure and see the glory of the Lord as he was being refined in the oven of affliction. Now, what about all this talk of the wicked and the unrepentant righteous dying? Well, that's referring to their physical death, not their eternal death. The context of this warning still is the onslaught of the very literal and real Babylonian army. The wicked who remained wicked and the righteous who refused to repent, they were going to be killed. The wicked who repented and the righteous who kept on walking with God through these evil times, they would be delivered from death. God told Ezekiel he would be held responsible and would be accountable for delivering God's message. There's really nothing odd about that. Of course we are responsible and accountable to walk with God and to faithfully fulfill our ministries. In each case, we read that either God would require the wicked man's blood at Ezekiel's hand or that Ezekiel's soul would be delivered. Requiring his blood reminds us of the institution of capital punishment in Genesis after the flood. God seems to be telling Ezekiel that this was a life and death situation. It was a life-saving situation. This is the message you need to tell people because they're going to die uh, if they don't hear about this, if you tell them and they refuse, then it's on them. This is like all the great disaster movies. There's always at least one guy who refuses to leave, isn't there? There's just one guy who won't leave. He's going to tough it out and he dies in the worst possible way. And you're like, you know, he just he gets slammed by the tidal wave or, you know, something, you know, he gets blown to smithereens or something like that. And that's that's what this is talking about. He had the warning, could have got out. But he chose to stay anyway. If Ezekiel failed to warn the people, it would be like condemning them to death. If he warned them, then it was on them to decide. It's really the same today. When we share the gospel, it is always a life and death situation because you don't know if that person has another day on this planet. You just don't know. You suspect that they do because statistically not that many people die every day in Hanford or in Lemoore. But all of a sudden, people do die, don't they? And you think, wow, where did that come from? Where did that disaster come? Where did that disease come from? Where did that accident come from? And so the sharing of the gospel, it is a life or death kind of a thing, but it's, a, you know, in, in terms of what might happen. Now, what about Ezekiel's soul being delivered? It almost sounds like his own salvation was dependent upon his obedience. Well, I can't see that in the text. For one thing, Ezekiel doesn't even speak for seven days. What if someone in Tel Aviv died during that time? How, do, how does that affect that? 
This passage isn't talking about eternal life or death. It isn't talking about Ezekiel's destination in the afterlife. The soul is often a reference to the soulish part of us as human beings, what we sometimes call our mind, will, and emotions. Soul is used here to indicate that Ezekiel would be free from the very real guilt and pain of failing to warn the wicked. Don't minimize the effect of guilt and shame. It can be a life-crippling stressor. When, when people realize they've made an awful mistake, uh, it, it can just really end their life effectively emotionally. Uh, there are things that people sometimes just don't recover from. Sometimes I read about things in the, in the news, things that happen, uh, and I think uh, that person, if they're not a Christian, there's no way they're going to recover from that. Uh, there, there, there's no amount of false hope uh, that because sometimes people really make real mistakes where they could have prevented something horrible from happening and they don't do it. And then they have to live with those consequences and it just ruins them uh, emotionally with guilt. And so this passage is not teaching us that if we fail to tell one single person about Jesus, we will be guilty of their eternal death and thus forfeit our own salvation. Even the greatest evangelists uh, you know, of our time and evangelists that I know personally, they don't always tell every living person that they come into contact with. They tell a lot more. People who have the gift of evangelism, I think it's fantastic. I love it to watch them. It just seems like God opens doors and, and the next thing you know, they're just sharing Christ. People are getting saved left and right. But even they don't share with every single person all the time. Uh, and so we're not, we're not putting a trip on people that if you fail to share Christ with somebody at any one particular moment, then you're doomed to hell. We do have a responsibility to warn people that Jesus and judgment are coming. We will be held accountable for our individual stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As to that stewardship, consider this. Ezekiel was specifically called to be the watchman to Israel. He would be held responsible and accountable for his watching and all that went with it. It's better in our life to try and understand what is my calling, how has God gifted me, where has God placed me or sent me, <coughs> and how am I doing in that sphere. It is for those things that you're responsible and will be held accountable. So do them well and be faithful in them. One thing I love to hammer on is that you can be faithful. We're not all tremendously gifted, you know, or with natural talents and abilities, uh, we don't all have the, the greatest opportunities in life, but we can all be faithful to the small things that God has given us to do. God sent them a watchman. Do you realize that in the very sending of a watchman, there is hope? The watchman is sent to warn, and the warning is for good. If God had abandoned his people, there's no need for a watchman. You don't, you don't send a watchman to somebody to warn them of impending judgment unless there is a chance that they can avoid it. And so the very presence of Ezekiel as their watchman was a blessing. I believe God sends us many a watchman throughout our own lives. Sometimes it's another person. It can be circumstances that either propel you forward or stop you dead in your tracks as a watchman warning you and directing you. The scripture itself is a great watchman. We read, for example, that we hide the word in our hearts 
so that we might not sin against the Lord. And so the Word of God is itself a great watchman. And you know what I'm talking about when uh, some temptation comes up and the Word of God is hidden in your heart. You know that it's just wrong and that you should turn away. It appears, too, while we're on this subject, that there are guardian angels watching over us. And so there are many, many things that we could go into tonight to show that there are watchmen. What joy knowing that God is faithful and loving to continually send watchmen to watch over me. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.